I have met so many entrepreneurs, business people, creatives that analyze themselves out of genius because they're forever evaluating their place and then they don't do the work. Do you want to know the trick to getting noticed? Have you ever struggled through your identity after losing a job? How do you become the person that others are looking for? Welcome back to the Riskers podcast. Today, we welcome Steve Lobby of the Steve Lobby Literary Agency. Steve has over 40 years of publishing experience, including representing nearly 2,000 titles. Uh, Steve and I and my wife, Brittany, have shared several dinners and laughs over the writing life and our walk with Jesus. Steve is the kind to hang out in bookstores long enough that the manager asks if he wants a job. He's the kind of person who has been through an identity crisis after getting fired, even though his job, he had done it with such excellence, it was, it was confusing and he, and he had lost his identity. So whether you are writing, looking to break through, or, or you've lost your job and a part of your identity and you're looking to get back on track, I know you're going to get a lot out of this podcast. So let me hit the music and get started. So the big question is this, how do Jesus-loving entrepreneurs, pastors, and driven men and women of faith like us who are taking risks to pursue their kingdom calling, how do we get our mission, the problem we're working to solve? the pain we're striving to heal, how do we fully realize it here on earth? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Caleb Brakey, and welcome to the Riskers Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Riskers Podcast. Today is an incredibly special guest. His name is Steve Lobby of the Steve Lobby Literary agency. I met Steve years ago at a conference and he was so polite to pay for my mine and my wife's dinner one night. And (laughs) I can't I can't describe how many times I was howling over the stories that were coming out of this man's mouth. And when I think of Steve Lobby, I tend to think of these two words. Now it, it probably sounds too too poetic here, but I think of truth because uh, Steve often tells writers, he's the type who acquires writers, he tells them the truth. But he does so in a way where they can feel good moving forward. And so I would say grace as well. So Steve, when I think of you, I think of truth and grace. Uh, Sitting around those tables, writers pitching you their work, not one of them left with a tear in their eye, but they left with very actionable insight. Steve Lobby, (laughs) welcome to the podcast. I can't wait to dive into your story. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit about, hey, where you're at in today's context, then let's dive into your story that begins way back 1981. Sure. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me and nothing like a uh, introduction that I have to now live up to. Uh, (laughs) I'm currently the uh, owner, president of the Steve Lobby Agency. We are a literary agency that uh, serves authors. Uh, For your guests who may not understand what that is, and I'm always asked, well, what is a literary agent? that every athlete has an agent, every artist has an agent, every Hollywood actor has an agent. Well, I'm that person, but for the writer. So I'm there for career development, career focus, uh, trying to keep people from getting off the path and to deal with troubles when troubles happen, because they do frequently, all related to the publishing business. Uh, and in that regard, it's, it's unique and it's very specialized in that format. 
At the same time, I'm a bit of a serial entrepreneur. So I also own and operate a small publishing company called Enclave Publishing, E-N-C-L-A-V-E. And our hope is to publish science fiction and fantasy that comes from a Christian worldview. And on top of that, I have a third entrepreneurial venture, and that's the Christian Writers Institute. We have online courses, but I publish the Christian Writers Market Guide. And literally this week, we put to bed the 2021 edition to get to the printer. So I have uh, fingers in all sorts of pies, but all related to publishing. That's awesome, Steve. And boy, if you're a writer right now, get the Christian Writers Market Guide today. That's going to be one of your by your desk Bibles as you move forward in your writing journey, especially going the traditional publishing route. And if you don't want to get the paper edition, we actually put all the content online for only $10 a year subscription-based, and it's updated throughout the year. Whereas this guy, when it's printed within a month, there's 100 changes in it. So the online version is really intended for the next generation of users, and that's available, very easy to find. Wow, that's excellent. Because I mean, half the problem for the writer is, hey, who's looking for this story that I've got on my heart here? If you have it updated, that's excellent. There's nothing worse than sending it off an email and getting a, hey, this email address is no longer in use. Or we don't publish that stuff anymore. That can change on Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, a very um, volatile marketplace out there. I mean, even putting together the 2021 edition, we were a little shocked at how many closures happened in the last year, but most of them were because of the pandemic. These companies just couldn't survive, and so they shut down. Um, And yet at the same time, we found a whole bunch more that started up because they had the time, the effort, and the inclination because of the pandemic. So it's kind of weird how you know it comes and goes depending on what's going on. Steve, before we jump into your story here, I, I want to lay some some more context in that when I got to know you, I kind of saw you and how other people, writers looked to you as almost one of these pioneers fighting for these uh, Christian genres that were on the edge, you know, that were willing to do almost like the, the Tolkien or the other worlds, yeah. some of the great books out there, but just there hadn't, they hadn't come out. They hadn't been mainstream for a long time. And you kept fighting for that. And here you now run Enclave and and providing that opportunity with that context. Now I go back to, I remember I'm at my first writing conference. I had just met with my very first agent and got a pretty seething. This needs a serious edit, like (laughs) good luck. And I was just so dejected. You were my next appointment. And I could really (laughs) feel more, uh, uh, more light afterward because of your encouragement and you kind of see people where they're at and, and treat an experienced writer and a new writer the same, which has been awesome. That yeah. has to come from a passion for the industry, from a passion for art, for a passion for the craft. So yeah. where did that start for you? <sighs> That's a great question. I mean, I guess I've been a lover of books and a lover of literature as long as I can remember all the way back to when I was 10 years old, reading my first science fiction novel. It was by Jules Verne. It was called Mysterious Island. Not 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was actually book one. I didn't know that. I was 10 years old. I just had a copy of Mysterious Island, and I was absolutely captivated. I still remember it because it was during a road trip that our family was on, And I was in the back of the station wagon 
my brothers got the bench seats. I got the back. And I was reading that book, traveling across the country, and I just, I'll never forget it. And I went from that to Edgar Rice Burroughs and other quote-unquote classic campy literature of that time. And when I was 17, 16, 17, my brother gave me Chronicles of Narnia. And, well, any of you who've ever read it, it is amazing. I mean, it just takes you to another place and makes you think about things and not just, the, it's, it's amazing how you can read those stories at two different levels. You can read them for great stories, but you also, there's the underpinning of theology and redemption and sacrifice and all of those things that come as a part of that particular piece of literature. And so that, you know, I then end up in, you know, university and was studying variety of things, started as a business major, and then um, through a variety of circumstances, ended up being a Bible major. And ironically, here I'm in the Bible business. Uh, who knew? <laughs> I mean, I was an accounting major at one point, which is why I'm not afraid of numbers, which why spreadsheets and royalty statements and what that is, it's like eating, you know, a box of fish crackers. I mean, it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, we can... I can probably take another 25 of those and it not really feel, you know, affect me. Uh, whereas <laughs> a lot of creatives are very seriously challenged by numbers. Right. And so to be able to come alongside someone who just says, I don't understand what this means. And I can turn that into a story that they can understand and what the implications are. So that part of it, but you know, when I was a senior in the, at the university, I kept going to a particular bookstore that was very close to the campus. And I would walk in there just because I love books. I was just, I was forever scouring the shelves. Literally every week I would go over there and spend a couple hours just because I would love to be in that environment. And the clerk behind the counter said, you're in here all the time and you're always finding books that are mispriced or whatever. Do you need a job? And I went, well, actually, Yeah. You know, I'm looking for something, maybe the last part of the senior year semester and maybe for the summer. And I went in for an interview. And as I was leaving the interview, he handed me an application and said, fill this out when you come back to work tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I got started. Wow. Literally part-time dusting shelves in a Christian bookstore off campus from where I'd been going to school. And wow. uh, through various, again, I'll just give them divine circumstances. My goal of going to seminary and all those kinds of things went away. And instead, I was bit by the retail bug and spent 11 years in that store, eventually becoming the store manager. And I wow. uh, was the national buyer for that particular chain for a while. And all those various things would happen. And it formed me as someone who was immersed in books mm -hmm. all the time and dealing with the public. So let's say, Caleb, you came into the store and you'd said, well, I've got this particular situation. You know, my mother's best friend's girlfriend is having trouble with their child. What book would you recommend? And I could walk you over and said, well, here's the one. But for some reason... I was gifted with an encyclopedic memory. The staff at some point began taking the printed version of the Christian books in print, and they would open it at random and give me the name of an author and say, how many of their titles can you name? And I would name them all. Wow. Or they would open it random and name a title, and I'd give them the name of the author and the publisher usually. 
so you know so, the landscape. You you know a lot of the books. You've been in this for eleven years now. At the kind of the forefront, you've you've been able to see was, what right. sells. You're talking with readers. You're kind of seeing what moves, what doesn't. And I was a national buyer, so I was buying books for an entire chain of stores across the country. So the sales reps and the marketing people and all that would be talking to me because we were a key account. Wow. But then in 1992, as what happens in some corporations, I lost a corporate battle I didn't know I was fighting. And I was terminated Mm -hmm. without warning. They literally flew into town and handed me a letter. It's like, what? You know, when you have 11 years and you're opinionated, basically by using me as an example, every other one of the managers in the company fell in line and were no longer fighting the powers back in Ohio. So that's really, to use the theme of this podcast, that's really where the risk-taking began because I was without work for nine months. What went through your head, Steve, when, Uh, I mean, because it's very, you were very accomplished. You were very, uh, you enjoyed your craft. You made yourself excellent at it. We had been the Christian bookstore of the year for the entire industry, one over 4,000 other stores. Wow. That had happened two years earlier. You can see the juxtaposition of, well, Mm. this isn't right. Oh, okay. But it happened. In fact, I even... (laughs) Yeah, I guess I can go on record and say this is long enough ago. But during that interview of termination, I said, if I got really angry right now and stood up and threatened you, would you change your mind? And my boss said, well, no. I went, then we're done. And I walked out. Wow. That interview lasted less than 10 minutes. Wow. Because I realized I couldn't fight the decision. And once the decision is made... All right, then you have to just go, well, now what? Because I hadn't been looking for work. I hadn't been casting my eyes out anywhere else. I will say that within short order, I was receiving job offers from various publishers, but they all wanted me to to be in marketing on the condition that I would move to their headquarters. So what was going on at this point, Steve? There is the paycheck side of it, but when you're wrapped up and you're good at something, like this is a part of your identity. So- what Absolutely, is Caleb. Months? And I have talked to so many people who have been fired, especially men. Sorry, ladies, but this is something that men really truly deal with, is that what you do defines who you are. And this absolutely hit me right between the eyes when I thought, well, okay, I don't have a job. So, and I'm on the board of Fuller Seminary's extension program here in, 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 the, in town. I can take theology classes for free because I'm on the board. I can just audit them. And so I went to one class, it was a night class, going to be studying the book of Jeremiah. Just never forget it. First session, first half hour, the professor says, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves and tell us what you do for a living. I had been fired. So it comes around, it comes to me, and the shame overwhelmed me. And I very shyly said, well, my name is Steve Lobby, and I'm unencumbered by employment. At the break, I left, got in my car, and went home and never went back. I was ashamed of being fired. And my friends, those of you who have gone through this, you know exactly what I'm saying. And I, I can speak only from the, a male perspective, and I imagine women feel meant much the same. But I'll tell you, I was the sole breadwinner. My wife didn't have a job. We had three small children at home. This was a massive blow to us. And so 
what do you do? Do you just cry and give up? Well, no, you begin doing whatever you need to do. So I was, <laughs> I even typed manuscripts for $7 an hour for a fellow. I would do whatever I could to gain any, any form of compensation. So I even started a little company to help sell books to libraries, not realizing that there were companies like Brodart and Baker and Taylor that, and Ingram that already did this and were massive organizations. Duh, I was an idiot. But I created my catalogs. I went to the various libraries in town, talked to their acquisitions, librarians. And of course, they were all very kind, but didn't make any sales. And I was just trying to find something. Before we go further, I want to take a quick break and tell you about the publishing expertise offered by Speak It to Book and Sermon to Book, where we help men and women of faith become powerfully positioned to impact lives by collaboratively writing their book and building their ministry platform. If you've longed to write your book and impact a broader audience, our team is here to help, even if you don't have the time or energy to write. We've helped riskers like you secure traditional book deals, hit numerous bestseller lists, keynote to 100,000 people in two years, and get featured on Entrepreneur on Fire, Forbes, and Inc. Schedule a free strategy call at www.calebrakey.com. And so you, you had the, the instincts of, hey, you got to provide. That, that part of you kicked in. Yeah. What about the time, the, the time of life where it was no longer about survival, it was a step of faith. When did that start? Because we know you're going into a whole nother part of your career. And there had to have yes. been a moment there where you probably did more than just say, yes, you were saying, I'm, I'm leaving this experience and kind of old life of what I know behind. Take us yeah. into that moment. You know, I, I'll quickly jump forward. After nine months, Bethany House approached me to be an editor. And Carol Johnson, who was the editor who was offering me a job, and the Carol Awards are named after her. So she's an icon in the industry. And I said, you want me to be an editor? And I said, to be honest, Carol, I don't know the difference between a colon and a semicolon, and I could care less. This is in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> And she laughed and she said, well, actually, we have people that know that, but we want to hire somebody who has an instinct for what a good book is. And we want you to be in acquisitions. I went, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> That's how naive I was. I went to my first writer's conference as a faculty member a month later. I'm on faculty. I don't even know what an editor does. So here I am all these years later. How did I learn? Just like any one of you, I sat in the back of the room and took notes. I went to conference after conference after conference on faculty, but I took classes. Then I began reading books on how to edit, on how to write. What does this all mean? I taught myself. Everyone who has any sort of desire to become good at what they do needs to be an eternal student. Mm. I still learn to this day. For example, what was it last month when Kanye West went on his rant about his music contracts and posted them online? All of them, every page? I have every page printed out and I studied them because 
I was curious, what did a music contract, not a book contract is a different, different thing for someone at that level. I don't need to know that, but I want to know it because I want to be better at my job. So I worked for Bethany House for many years. Uh, I did not have to move. I worked remotely. And in this day and age, that sounds, okay, so what's the big deal? Well, let me put in context. Back then, we had dial-up internet. AOL was a big deal. So you couldn't have video calls. You could have a conference call with this big winged instrument in the middle of a table, but no one knew how to work it. And at one point, I was in a meeting and everyone dismissed for lunch, but they didn't tell me. They just all left. And I'm still, I finally went, hello, is there anybody there? (laughs) And they were all gone. So I went, well, I guess the meeting's over. Um, I would commute from Phoenix to Minneapolis about every month or so for 11 years. Wow. That's how I did it. And I was an early pioneer in remote uh, editing. And then I became editorial director so I was overseeing a staff that was 2,000 miles away. Now, you might say, what does that have to do with risk-taking? At the end of my time with Bethany House, they were put up for sale. And whenever that happens in a company, you have to ask, am I going to have a job in another couple months? So I began casting out my various lures, and nothing was really coming to fore. There still weren't remote editors very often. So when Baker came in and bought Bethany House... I had to decide whether I was going to stick with the company or whether I was going to start step out and do something new. And that's when I became a literary agent. Wow. This is that point of risk. The way a literary agency works is that I don't get paid until the author gets paid. So if Caleb, you and I were working together today and we said, okay, you've got this great book idea. We've got a great proposal. We start shopping it today. We might get a contract offer in the next eight weeks. Then we go through the contract process, and then the publisher will pay you a portion on signing, a portion on delivery of the manuscript, and a portion on publication. So my commission, the 15% that an agent makes, is spread out for all that time. So it could be that your book doesn't come out until 2022. That means I don't get very much money in the beginning. And so when we sat down to form the agency, I had to ask my wife, well, how long can we go without any income at all? I mean, seriously, to where we drained absolutely everything we have in savings, investments, everything. We had already lost it all once when I got fired. So here we are a decade later, what can we do? And we figure it was anywhere between eight and nine months, which is a long time. I mean, we were blessed. We were frugal. So it was in month six after becoming a literary agent that I got my first check for $150. (laughs) Hey, honey, we can't pay the mortgage again. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's serious entrepreneurial risk-taking. Many entrepreneurs, they either borrow money or they have family money or they have their own somehow, somewhere. And they are pretty much putting it all on the table and hoping the, uh, the roulette wheel turns up red or black. There is always risk involved. At the same time, I call it a calculated risk because I knew a lot of authors. And I knew a lot of authors who didn't have agents at the time who had been looking, but didn't want any of the ones that were out there. I had a number of people who are still clients today after 17 years who said, when I called them to say, well, I'm starting this agency, they went, finally, oh, good, you know, sign me up. And they're still with me. 
after all wow. these years. And then through the favor of uh, God's grace, we had a few very large contracted deals in that first year, which then basically created the seed money, which after a while began building and building and building and building and building. So even starting the uh, uh, Enclave Publishing, even starting the Christian Writers Institute, all of those were each done on a calculated risk basis. You see a need, well, should I, not can I, but should I be the one that steps into this void? And am I going to lose my shirt on it? Or am I going to uh, cover my costs? Which for my other entrepreneurial businesses, that's my only goal, is to cover costs. I'm not looking to make millions of dollars. That's laughable if you're a publisher or even a, even something like the Institute. You just, you're hoping to serve people, fill a niche. And if something breaks out, great. If it doesn't, then we keep doing what we're doing because we believe in it. Wow. So you made me talk for a long time and I hope it didn't <laughs> bore your listeners. Not at all. You are, and, and, and this is an awesome segue. You, you, you've, you get your first $150 check. Now you've represented over 2,000 titles. Now let's step into the view of that person who's back at Bethany when you don't know if you're going to have a job. Or here's a couple of things I wanted to hit on, Steve. You had mentioned one, you, you had this naivete. You had this talking with Carol. I don't know the difference between a colon and a semicolon. So <laughs> I think the listeners might say like, how in the world did he get that job? I guess Steve just just was in the right place, the right. He got his break, but we know it's more than that. And well, I, I in that talk. particular case, it goes back to the fact when I was the national buyer, mm. I connected with key people. And one of the key people was the president of Bethany House Publishers. He was the sales rep. Mm -hmm. And so when he came in to pitch the new catalog to the key accounts, which of which we were one, we would never talk about the books that were in the catalog. To me, that was old news. It's like, I can read a catalog just like you can. Mm. What's coming next was my question. And so he recognized in me this forward thinking and this, uh, this willingness to talk about it and a passion for discovery and for the industry. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that one way or the other, and that's not something necessarily a it can be replicated but you have to give someone like him a lot of credit for going back to the office. And then a year or two later, when they had a vacancy, they thought, who do we know that's out there that could do this? And then, <laughs> I mean, think of this. Then in 1993, which is a billion years ago in internet time, <laughs> I mean, Google didn't exist then. Amazon didn't exist then. Apple had gone out of business twice. So in 1993, they were willing to let me commute. Holy smoke. Now, I, I can't take any of that credit. I give them the visionary risk-taking credit because they risk taking a green, ignorant, person who they just thought I had potential and gave me opportunity. And then I took that opportunity and tried to make the best of it. And through, again, through God's grace, 
opportunities came forward, certain things happened, and the next thing you know, we have seriously the very that very first writers conference where I went to where I didn't know anything or anything like that. I'm up on a a panel discussion on the stage, and the editor from Tyndale leaned over to me before the discussion began and said, "So, you see anybody any good out there?" And I'm thinking, oh, that's what we're supposed to do. How cool is that? Okay, we're supposed to share. <laughs> and so I turned to him and I said, you see that lady six rows up and four seats in? There's something there. Well, that author has now sold a million books. Wow. I just go back to this. Using the giftedness that you have and the passion that you have, find what that is. And to use a, now what's a cliche is to lean into it, find out more. I mean, I see that in you, Caleb. I mean, you know, go back to that very first conversation where you were then is very different than where you are now because you found something that is a passion of yours and you leaned in, took the risk and boom, it fit a niche and filled a need that some people didn't even know they needed. And that's how it works. I'm looking at my notes here, Steve, and you keep staying one step ahead of me in everything you're <laughs> saying. It shared. So I'm just I'm thinking in terms of the listeners, all I'm seeing here is becoming that one. And one of the new phrases I've just fallen in love with has been you, you have to be the book before you write the book. And it's this mm-hmm. idea of, you know, you mentioned not, you, you said, should I be the one? to write this? Or should I be the one to do this job? And you're really saying, have I become this person? They, you know, you became the person that Bethany and others were looking for. Right. You became that person because of your, your passion, your, your knowledge for it. And, and your, even your willingness to say, I, I don't know if I'm the right person because of this grammar. And they're saying, no, that's not even what we're talking about. They saw that spark in Steve you had become the person they were looking for. Right. So the person who's taking a risk today, how would you, how would you help them self-evaluate? Hey, are you becoming that person that is right for this opportunity to write this book, to start this venture? Is there even any criteria where you could start to offer uh, listeners? I, I don't like to use criteria because that starts becoming rules. Yeah. And one, two, threes, because it's everybody is different. Everybody is different. You know, I I can't help but bring in a relationship with Christ into every conversation like this. Because if you make it all about you, you will fail because you're not perfect, period. You have to have something else that is the point of what you're doing. That's why I came up with the moniker for the agencies that we are helping We are not doing it. We're not writing it. We're helping to change the world word by word. The idea is that's who we are. That's the niche we have entered into. And I admire writers. My gosh, I'm not a writer. At least I don't think I am. And well, maybe that's healthy. Maybe if you think you're a writer, maybe you should rethink that. Because on top of all of this is the paralysis of analysis. I have met so many entrepreneurs, business people, creatives, that analyze themselves out of genius because they're forever evaluating their place and then they don't do the work 
Because when you start looking too carefully, self-doubt will creep in very quickly. My goodness, I know how many times I have dreamed that I have bankrupt myself. And then I wake up and realize, oh, well, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, there's, this, there's always this pressure. And when you think about it as an entrepreneur like myself, I live off of commission. So my success is based on someone else's success. So I pretty much don't have control over it. That's a very weird place to live. And you can have up years and down years and up years and down years, up months, up weeks, up days and down days. But if you let that doubt creep in, you start believing it. How do you move forward, deal with doubt while listening to what you feel like the spirit's moving you toward? <laughs> How do you navigate these? Because you, one of the constant themes I think that's going to be played out through this podcast for a very long time is head or heart. You feel like God's telling you to do something, but maybe it doesn't make sense up here. Well, sometimes God tells us to do something. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. But other times we yep. can follow feelings to a fault where you know, it, it didn't make sense. Yeah. There's a great book called Decision Making and the Will of God written by Gary Friesen that I read, goodness, 1980. And it talks about decision making, especially when both choices are equal. When they are absolutely equal, which one do you choose? And am I making a mistake if I choose one or the other? And he made a very good point. He's saying, actually, if God has put two equal things in front of you, neither one is a mistake. There are times where you choose one of them, and after you get into it, you're like, oh, that wasn't a very good idea. And then you have to back out. Okay, I've made Met some of those choices. I've become involved in organizations or or op opportunities, and after a very short time, I'm realizing this this wasn't a good use of my time, and so I just need to quietly bow out. But to go back to your original question, I actually have a so wall hanging here in my office. It's a quote attributed to Ignatius Loyola. It pretty much says, "Work is as everything is up to you, and pray as if everything is up to God." That's that. the head and heart tension. The head is the work. The heart is the prayer. The head says, we're going to work hard. We're going to do 60 hours, 70 hours, 80 hours a week on this. We are going to all in to use the poker term and step back and went, I sure hope it works out. Or you put it all in because you know it is going to work out. And then you pray, Lord, bless this as my goal here is for your glory, not mine. You know, some people have laughingly said, hey, with all the things you've been involved in, Steve, you're, you're a kingdom builder. And I went, well, it's not my kingdom. Mm. This isn't the kingdom of Steve Lobby. I've got people complain that I'm really hard on them. And I said, why? Why am I hard on you? Because we are being called to absolute excellence in everything we do. And I am tired of the world's estimation of anything that's Christian is being less than stellar. Because mm. it's not true. And there are just absolutely brilliant writers, speakers, teachers, musicians, and they are faith-oriented, and they can hold their work right up to anyone else. A writer comes to me, and they have a half-baked idea, and I push back and say, you know, nobody cares about this idea. It's a, it has a bad title. 
you haven't put together the right things. And they're like, but, but, but God gave it to me. I went, I'm not so sure. Hmm. He may have inspired you, but he's also telling you to get busy and <laughs> learn how to do it right because no one's going to buy it the way it is. Like that sounds is, really harsh, <laughs> but it's true. But it's true. I feel like this is um, coming full circle, thinking of how you've stuck out with writing stories on the on the edges. And we've looked back to some greats where the story was fantastic and the themes were fantastic, showing how great our God is. And yet today we settle for you know, the, the mud pies instead of the holiday at the sea. We want to think of the, the five ways to become a better Christian or, you know, we're, we're unwilling to dive into these deep stories. And so let me address that very quickly, because sometimes the five ways to become a better Christian is all that reader can absorb. They're in the journey and they haven't quite gotten to the point where they can dive into C.S. Lewis's miracles and have any idea what he's talking about. Mm. This is why when it comes to fiction, you have people poo-poo the, uh, the category romance, saying, oh, that's just fluff and has no meaning and whatever. Look, I have clients who write that literature. The thousands of letters they have in their possession of people who said that story changed my life or that book kept me from committing suicide or that book made me realize I need to be more intent on my relationship with my husband or my wife. Thousands of letters. And yet the marketplace goes, ah, nobody wants that. You write books that you're called to write. I mean, I have a uh, an author who writes, uh, he's written a bunch of books that are very basic on what the Bible teaches. Then I have another author who just did a 350-page tome on penal substitution and atonement. <laughs> this writer over here, their audience, could not even pronounce half the words in this book. But the people who read this don't need this. Mm. They can write it themselves in their sleep, but they want to wrestle with the really deep theological issues and say, how can we have a better understanding of the deepest mysteries? There's a book and a place for, for everyone. Everything. And I think the biggest thing as Christian writers, Christian artists, is to embrace the tension and to be great. There you because go. Because our king is great. Embrace the tension, because that tension should always be there. Yes, Calvin Miller had a great story that illustrates this. He said he went to the Great Barrier Reef with his wife and his son years ago. You're out in the middle of nowhere, but the water is three feet deep because the coral has risen right up to below the surface of the, of the ocean. He said, my wife and I brought our snorkeling gear. Our son brought his scuba gear. He said, ask all of us, have you ever been to the Great Barrier Reef? And all of us will say, yes, it was wonderful but only one of us went deep. You can come into a conversation on any topic and you can be there in your snorkeling gear and absolutely be blessed and have an extraordinary experience. Or you can go as a risk taker where it's deep and it's dark and it's dangerous. One mistake, a hundred feet down and you will never surface again. But what you see down there, no one else will see. Wow. Steve, this has been fantastic, brother. And you are very close to becoming a proud grandpapa 
for was it number second time number second time, time. Number two, yeah congratulations sir to wrap this up if some of these things people are connected with you they want to hear more from steve lobby maybe they're a writer maybe they're not where would you like to send them sure stevelobby.com l-a-u-b-e if you spell l-o-b-b-y it'll still come to me because i've learned that people don't know how to spell my name uh <laughs> By the way, that's a trick for any of you entrepreneurs out there is buy the misspelling of your name Ooh. and redirect it. Anyway, go to the Steve Lobby Agency. We have a blog five days a week and it's free. We have over 2,000 posts that are in the archives. That's pretty much anything and everything you ever want to know about publishing. If you're being blessed right now by hearing, like, I want to get into the deep. Like, I've, I've, I've spit out enough snorkel water, and <laughs> I actually, I'm kind of like addicted to it. But I gotta go to the next step. I gotta let God show up in the, in the middle of the deep. Well, I hope this has been inspiring to you. And for those of you who are on the writing side, please check out that blog. Educate yourself like crazy, because just like as Steve uh, showed how he became the one that others were looking for, that's really how literary agents work. You have to become that writer that they're already looking for. So Steve, thank you, brother, so much for joining me today. And I cannot wait until we get to share another dinner table again. (laughs) Thanks, Caleb. It was a privilege to be here. Thank you for listening to the Riskers podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Speak It to Book and Sermon to Book, where we're on a mission to teach kingdom-minded men and women how to write, publish, and market best-selling books and build world-class platforms. To learn more, go to www.calebrakey.com.